Welcome to The Gaggle, an AZ Central podcast where we chat with reporters, experts, and special guests to keep you fully informed on the state's political news. I'm your host, Yvonne Winget Sanchez, and I cover national politics for the Arizona Republic. And I'm Ron Hansen, also a national reporter for the Republic. Recently, Georgia became one of the first states in the country to pass a voting restriction law after the 2020 election. Their new law includes changes like shortening the window to request an absentee ballot, requiring more than a signature on mail-in ballots, and no longer allowing voters in line to be brought food and drinks. Arizona is considered one of the next states to possibly follow and implement its own changes to voting laws. Senate Bill 1485 proposes getting rid of the permanent early voting list, which is used by most voters. And then there's Senate Bill 1713, which adds an ID requirement along with a signature to verify your ballot. They're both bills that really have the broader electorate asking if Arizona could be the next Georgia. With a Republican governor and a Republican majority in the legislature, it's not out of the question. The Arizona GOP pushed back on voting fairness after President Joe Biden won the state by the narrowest margin in the country. Now, one of the state's most influential business groups, Greater Phoenix Leadership, is urging the GOP to resist draconian changes to the election process. They pushed back in court and they pushed back in messaging. Now they're pushing back at the state house. In this week's episode of The Gaggle, we look at the voting restriction laws at large in the country and discuss how likely it is that Arizona tries to pass some of its own. Joining us now is Sonia Diaz, the founding director of the Latino Policy and Politics Initiative at UCLA. She's a civil rights attorney. And last week, she testified before the House of Representatives on voting in America. Sonia, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So we've talked in earlier episodes about some of the election-related bills being considered by the Arizona legislature. Since then, Georgia enacted sweeping changes to its election laws to a lot of national attention, and other states are looking at making changes too. Can you give us a sense of what's happening nationally in terms of these election law changes? There's been an avalanche of state legislative action on voting rights, and many of this is really in the form of something that we define as voter suppression bills. So just as of March 24th, legislators have introduced 361 bills with restrictive provisions in 47 states, according to the Brennan Center. And so what we know is that this is 108 more bills than at the beginning of February, And so the avalanche is not stopping. Instead, it's gaining momentum. We saw that in Georgia when we saw an um, all-white legislative body stand behind the governor in Georgia signing a restrictive bill at a time when Georgia had an outsized role in not just deciding who occupied the White House, but who had control over the U.S. Senate. So big picture, what is your sense as to what is really sort of motivating these efforts in state capitals across the country? Is it, you know, the results of the 2020 election? Are Republicans sort of preparing for long-term demographic changes that might um, favor Democrats over Republicans? Is it something else or a combination of all of it? 
I think it's a combination of all of it. And so if we think about this, this happened really in response to the 2008 presidential election where we saw Barack Obama win the presidency and be the first African-American president in our nation's history. He did that through a coalition of young voters and voters of color. And it was the Obama coalition that many Democrats have tried to replicate but have fallen short. And so at the same time that that happened, we saw a number of state legislatures try and restrict access to the ballot box, voter ID laws, voter purge, arduous registration requirements. Now, those legislatures that previously under Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act had to ask for permission from the federal government no longer had to after the 2013 decision out of the U.S. Supreme Court in Shelby County versus Holder. So that brings us to where we are right now in 2021. And we saw that this is a pattern. It's a contemporary pattern that has historical roots in the U.S. But I can't be remiss if I don't acknowledge that all of these voter suppression bills are coming at a time and in jurisdictions where we saw growth in the electorate, particularly amongst Latino voters. This is true of Arizona, that in many ways up until this new data from Brennan led the country in the number of voter suppression bills. We also see that in places like Georgia and Pennsylvania, where Latino voters were a small number of the electorate, but because of their outsized preference for one party over the other, they help swing elections. So let's get into it a little bit more intensively about Arizona. How do the changes that are being uh, proposed here stack up against the, the ones that we saw enacted in Georgia or under consideration in other states? Well, in many ways, Arizona is a trailblazer in this regards and has been because unlike some of the other states that when we saw the 1965 Voting Rights Act uh, pass and be signed by the president, Arizona was not included in one of the covered jurisdictions. Yet because of bad acting um, in terms of restricting the right to cast a ballot, Arizona was opted in. So they become one of the states alongside Texas and Georgia and even some counties in California to have to ask permission. So Arizona has a long-standing history of restricting access. At the same time, there is a history of some bipartisan support for certain things, whether that is an independent redistricting commission or prior to this legislative cycle, um, really robust vote by mail. So it is confusing about what's going on right now, but it is not new for that particular state. Under the Voting Rights Act years ago, Arizona's history of discrimination against Native Americans and Latinos meant that the Justice Department had to review their processes in advance. Does Arizona have a reputation of currently botching elections or making them unfair? Well, absolutely. When we think about some of the ways in which these suppression bills um, target voters that are young, voters that are of color, or voters that are, are poor. And so when you seek to restrict access to the voting um, box, it's really hard, especially for first-time voters. And here's the thing. Our nation's population demographics exist in this very unique frame where we have a mature, aging white electorate and a youthful, growing electorate of color. So the people that are first-time voters don't get that information that we all expect in terms of voter mobilization and engagement. And so anything that is going to hinder their access to casting that first ballot means that they're in a feedback loop of exclusion. 
And that's really going to hinder an inclusive democracy. In many ways, that's part of the purpose of all of these bills. So in Georgia, we, we've all sort of heard about how you're not allowed to feed the voters or give them drinks while they stand in line in Arizona among the ideas that was kicked around is the idea that the legislature could just overturn results if they uh, saw fit to do so. Where do you see Arizona's proposals as you understand them in that spectrum of uh, laws that are addressing known issues or creating new barriers to uh, participation, uh, however you want to tackle it? Well, I'll have to hand it to the Arizona legislators who have come up with these trend-setting ideas, because that's what they are. Many states are trying to restrict early voting and vote by mail, despite the widespread gains and the public health benefits and the fact that they almost ensure uh, and nullify voter fraud because there's a paper trail. But that's not enough for these legislators in Arizona with their ideas about giving local control about an outcome. That's pretty novel, and it will have robust implications for the ideation of other legislators that exist in Pennsylvania and Georgia and Florida who maybe don't even need those ideas. So the big question hanging over some of these ideas is, will they stand? Do you have any thoughts as to whether the Supreme Court could weigh into these issues? Is that partially why we might be seeing some of them? Well, I think that what's really important is that litigation is very costly and it takes a long time. So this is happening to really stifle important elections that are to come, particularly the 2022 midterms, which in the state of Arizona, um, correct me if I'm wrong, will have an open seat for the governor's mansion. And so this is really not about long-term results as to whether or not they're unconstitutional. These are really thoughtful actions to usurp power and grab that power for a decade to come. Do we have a sense from the positions staked out by this Supreme Court or by any of the justices in their earlier work before they joined the bench um, as to how they might view any of these kinds of challenges? Are they especially deferential to states' rights? Are they uh, supportive of uh, these kinds of modifications to the Voting Rights Act or other election laws that might suggest how they might view these matters? Well, you know, I'll say that we have the Shelby County decision where the chief justice said that the history of constitutional violations had really changed and there was not a need for the cover jurisdictions to ask permission for any changes to the election. This in the face of the voter suppression that was already occurring in response to President Obama's candidacy and victory. Now, what I'll say is that the real question here is, is that are we going to allow Americans to cast a ballot? Or are we not? And if we want them to cast a ballot, it's not enough to depend on the Department of Justice or our courts or litigators to fight each and every single one of these discrete battles. Remember, there are so many bills in 47 states. And so the real question here is, is that if we want Americans to cast a ballot to participate in free and fair elections, then it's going to necessitate the government and Congress to act. 
and to really remedy these pernicious attacks, whether it's someone getting water waiting in line to vote or their name being purged or a simple mistake that they can't hear. All of this is bad for democracy, but ultimately it is really a playbook that has been very successful in places like Wisconsin, in Texas, and in Arizona. Do you at all um, connect the so-called big lie, this notion that the 2020 presidential election was stolen from President Trump, to what we're seeing in these state houses across the country? And if so, how has the big lie sort of helped lay the groundwork for the emotions and um, maybe some of the resentments that we're seeing by base Republicans um, about the turnout and the and the results of the 2020 election? Well, it is a big lie because Republicans were successful. They were able to pick up a lot of seats that they lost in the 2018 midterms. And they also were able to preserve some legislative control in some of the states across the country. With that, the big ticket item, which was the White House, went clearly to the Democratic Party, not just because of total votes, which it had been in previous elections, but because of the Electoral College in states like Arizona and Georgia and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. So this big lie is really confusing because at one hand, you have a clear and decisive victory for the White House. On the other hand, Republicans were able to double down and, in fact, increase their net gains in the House of Representatives. All of this is to say People are mobilized and they're polarized. And unfortunately, the people that are most aggrieved also have direct connections to those in power in the state houses. And those in power in those state houses are ready to act. And we're seeing it right now. And this is really hard because it's not only at a time where we saw the highest turnout in the midst of a global pandemic where we've seen, you know, half a million Americans lose their lives. But we're seeing people excited on both sides to cast a ballot. And so we should be celebrating that as a floor and not a ceiling. So Democrats in the House um, have been pursuing the H.R. 1 uh, reforms that would really sort of overhaul the way that Americans vote on a number of different fronts. Uh, uh, it tackles what they view as voting rights and campaign finance laws and such. This kind of uh, legislation, though, appears to uh, face an uphill battle in the 50-50 Senate at the moment. Where does that leave Americans? Where does that leave Arizonans as the states are pursuing their agenda and Congress is trying to figure out what, if anything, uh, they want to do? Until Congress acts, state legislatures will continue to bar free and fair access to the elections. And even when we have legal advocates, either from the government or civil rights, civil society organizations, those are years long decisions that may not always turn out in voters' favor. So ultimately, everybody is at a standstill in terms of what is right and what will be the law of the land. State legislators who are really promulgating these voter suppression bills and trying to create more restrictions know this. And man, they are playing the game really well. All right, Sonia, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we'll probably be catching up with you soon, as soon as we have a sense how all this shakes out. Awesome. Thanks so much.
All right, listeners, let's dive into some afterthoughts. Ron, Arizona has been here before. There is already quite a bit of fallout for Georgia for enacting its law. This reminds me a bit of what happened after Arizona passed Senate Bill 1070, the strictest illegal immigration bill in the nation back in 2010. Yeah, so there are some striking uh, reminders in all of this. Uh, Georgia is seeing the early stages of a corporate pushback uh, and a a very public kind of uh, fallout for its law. And it is sort of in the early stages of being branded as a, a state defined by racists and extreme partisans and such. This is something that Arizona had to deal with in the 1070 age, that there was a presumption of bad faith by the people who passed the law. There were a number of people in entertainment fields and in other uh, governmental uh, agencies that wanted to not deal with the state if they didn't have to. It's the kind of fallout, frankly, that Arizona was very happy to escape after uh, a short while. It's the kind of thing that the state could find itself in running in that company again if they were to pass some of the more drastic steps that have been proposed here. So, you know, I'm not sure if this is a model that Arizona wants to uh, mimic. Um, You know, Yvonne, you followed Governor Doug Ducey back in 2014 when he was first winning election. Uh, and part of that campaign, it seemed, was really built around the idea of trying to rehabilitate Arizona's reputation, that uh, after 1070, there was a sense that the state needed to improve its image, get off the top of the Daily Show each night, and uh, present itself in a more responsible way. What do you think that this governor now uh, will do to try and help manage this kind of situation that seems to be brewing uh, right under his nose. He's watching the fallout, just like um, everyone is. I mean, this is a guy who came from corporate America. He was the CEO of Coldstone Creamery. He um, cares about the state's reputation. He cares about his own reputation. He's uh, chair of the Republican Governors Association, as we've talked quite a bit about here on the gaggle, and he's in touch with governors and state houses across the country trying to get a sense as to, you know, how far maybe some of these places are willing to go um, to tighten and restrict voting laws. He is watching the fallout from Georgia. He's also a, a a sports guy, right? I mean, it matters to him that a major sports team like MLB would pull a major um, tourist-inducing event like the All-Star Game from a city. So we used to call Doug Ducey Kill Bill Ducey. One of the things about him, um, as with other governors, is it's not necessarily what you see him lobbying or his team lobbying at the state legislature. It's what you don't see. And oftentimes what you don't see and doesn't get covered is how his team does or does not engage behind the scenes. I would presume that behind the scenes on these bills that are wending their way through the state capitol, they probably are not going to make the governor's desk. 
And um, I would be surprised if they make the governor's desk. And if they were to make it to the governor's desk, I would be surprised if he were to sign them into law. I think when he talks about reforms, they're not necessarily the type of reforms that some of these GOP lawmakers um, are talking about, particularly those who helped spread the uh, so-called big lie. So um, I would certainly watch that um, closely over the next couple of weeks. And I know that Andrew Oxford, our state legislative reporter, will be covering it. And over in Congress, there is pressure for the Senate um, to pass its own version of H.R. 1, which is the House Democrats sort of um, very massive expanded voter rights um, uh, law that, that we referenced with Sonia. Any prospects for that thing to make it through the Senate? Well, I mean, clearly that is going to depend on how far they can go with this. I, I think that uh, the usual suspects in the Senate these days are not inclined to take uh, really dramatic action if there's not bipartisan agreement on it, if there's not widespread public support. I think that the that last part, the public support for this part of this could be something that evolves, especially as the Georgia law uh, receives more public scrutiny. It may provide the kind of uh, interest level from the public that encourages more people to get on board with that. But whatever emerges from the Senate is almost certainly going to be far more measured and less far reaching than what we've seen from the House. And for the House, this isn't new. They've pursued this now uh, since Democrats retook the chamber in 2019. And uh, while they have a new impetus, perhaps, to try and pass these things, it's not clear if there's significant enough support to be able to make it as far-reaching as they would like. All right, that's it for today, Gaggle listeners. While we still have you, please don't forget to rate and review our show and share it with a friend. If you want to reach out to me on Twitter, I'm at Yvonne Winget. And I'm at Ronald J. Hansen, and that's H-A-N-S-E-N. Today's episode was edited and produced by Amanda Luberto with help from Marisa Dominguez. Thanks so much for listening to The Gaggle, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. We'll see you next week.